What does it mean when the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart? Didn't he commit adultery and murder? How can that be after God's own heart? In today's lesson, we'll take an in-depth look at that statement and be challenged on how our hearts can be ones that please God as we look at our topic today, David, great goodness and great sins, but always a heart in the right place. David, a man after God's own heart. This phrase is part of a sermon of Paul's in the New Testament, where in Acts 13.22 it says, when he's talking about the history of Israel, After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. What does that mean, to be a man after God's own heart? First, let's look at the definition of the Greek word heart, which is actually the word cardia. And I'm sure right away you're thinking cardiologists, uh, you know, coronary care, you know, all these different words that come from it. But let's just look at that Greek word for a minute. It's the same word, of course, that's used to describe the heart as the organ in the body, but obviously it means a whole lot more than that. And what it also means in the Greek is it means the center of all physical and spiritual life. It's the seat of our spiritual life. And it is, as it says in the Blue Letter Bible definition, the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, endeavors of the will and character. It's what motivates us. It's what drives us to do the things that we do. So let's look for a minute at a few other instances of how it's used in scripture and that'll give us a little bit more of a meaning of it. Now here are some other uses of the word heart in the Bible. In Matthew 6 21 it says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our heart reflects what's important to us. To be after God's own heart, we should attempt to make important to us the same things that are important to God. A really good diagnostic verse for to see if we're doing this in our life is where it says in Matthew 12, 34, and Jesus is talking and he says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside us will come out. Our actions will show the world, show ourselves, if our heart is based on God's will and ways or our own. Now, popular culture has really diminished the whole definition of the of of our heart and of what drives us and things like that. We've made it into kind of just a mushy emotion, but it's really so much more. Our passion might be a better term to approximate the real biblical meaning of the heart. Our passion as the driving force of all we do in our lives, of what makes us choose what we do, do what we do. In James 5.8, it says, Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. What's most important, if what's most important to you is that your obedience to God is first, that Jesus is Lord, that doing his will is your number one concern, and that you know his word well enough to know what his will is. If that's your passion, your heart can be a heart after God's own heart. I hope that makes sense. 
just really look at yourself and think, you know, what is it that drives me? What is it that's most important to me? What is it that I want above all else? And if you can honestly say it's to know the Lord, to do His will, then you have a heart after His. And if not, hopefully these lessons and all the other things you do to grow in your spiritual life will help make you the kind of person like David, whose heart was one that God says, that's like my heart. Now, with that as an introduction, our lesson will show you how David lived it out. And I think this will be encouraging to you because he wasn't always perfect. To be a person after God's own heart, we can desire all these things, but it doesn't mean that we're, we have a life that's without problems or without sin. Because David, for goodness sakes, he had plenty of them. But what I want you to really see in this lesson is how he reacts to them. In contrast, especially with Saul, who when he made a mistake, he made excuses. He dug himself deeper into whatever sin he'd committed. In contrast, this is a really good description of David's life, where in Proverbs 24:16 it says, Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Now let's look at the falling and the rising in David's life. As a young man, David is a young man, he was anointed to be king when he was approximately 15, 16 years old. But tough times were going to be ahead. Now an initial application from this encourage young people to dream big dreams for God, while at the same time helping them see the training, the denial, and the discipline they're going to need to make their calling reality. Don't give them the false idea that Christianity is just fun and good times and that being a Christian is a protection against everything that's difficult. If you do that, what will happen, and this applies to spiritual training for adults also, if they think the Christian life is a guarantee against troubles when troubles come, and they will come. But if they don't expect them, young people, older people, all of us, people will bail out. They get angry with God. They complain. They whine. They walk away. Where in reality, the greater the calling, most likely the more challenges a person will have to fulfill it. We all need to see trials as training to help us grow in Christ's likeness. Remember in James 1, 2, it says, and you've heard me quote this a lot before, and I'll keep quoting it again and again, where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. To consider it pure joy when you face trials. <laughs> we need a real passion for God, a heart for God to look at things in that way. And we can be trained into it. It probably took David around 15 more years until he actually became king after he was anointed to be king. First he fought Goliath. He becomes very popular in Saul's court. He actually marries Saul's daughter. He leads armies. He's successful. But then Saul turns on him. And he's a fugitive. For many years, he's on the run. His wife was given to someone else, and he loses his best friend, Jonathan. 
Saul, on the other hand, whined, disobeyed, acted presumptuously when he experienced trials, but David turned his trials into a legacy of trust and praise to God. Now, we know that he did this because he wrote a lot of psalms during this time. And here's a representative one. This is a wonderful example for us when we're going through a hard time. And even if we can't say these things, we can repeat David's words until they become part of our life and experience. This is from Psalm 37 in the Living Bible, where it says, Never envy the wicked. Soon they fade away like grass and disappear. Trust in the Lord instead. Be kind and good to others. Then you will live safely here in the land and prosper, feeding in safety. Be delighted with the Lord. Then he will give you all your heart's desires. Now that doesn't mean getting everything that you want. (laughs) Remember that means he'll give you what you desire. Your desires will become his desires going on in the psalm. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him to help you do it, and he will. Your innocence will be clear to everyone. He will vindicate you with the blazing light of justice shining down as from the noonday sun. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him to act. Don't be envious of evil men who prosper. Stop your anger. Turn off your wrath. Don't fret and worry. It only leads to harm. For the wicked shall be destroyed, but those who trust the Lord shall be given every blessing. Only a little while, and the wicked will disappear. You will look for them in vain, but all who humble themselves before the Lord shall be given every blessing and shall have wonderful peace. David refused to take matters into his own hands, again in stark contrast to Saul. When Saul was under pressure, he sacrificed when he shouldn't have. He did all sorts of things that he wasn't supposed to and got um, correctly punished for it. But not David. He didn't kill Saul even though he had many opportunities to do so. You see, he knew God's overall commands, that he was not to harm the king that was anointed by the Lord. When Saul was in a cave and unprotected, he could have easily killed him. But he didn't let an earthly event, a seeming coincidence, guide him, though the stakes were huge. The kingship and a kingdom, as well as the lives of all who followed him, were on the line. Yet, he held firm in obeying God. Now, here's a really important application from that. Be careful of making a wrong decision because some random event happened. A sign. Some people will say, oh, you know, I didn't think I should do that. But then a sign happened, and I know it was from God. (laughs) It probably wasn't. Or whatever is contrary to either previous guidance a clear sense that you a clear command that you have from God that you had in the past and simply common good sense things can happen to tempt us to turn us but no matter if it is a challenging provocation or a positive event there is never a circumstance that should cause you to disobey what you know God wants you to do Even advice by otherwise good people who care about you may need to be ignored. Sometimes people don't want to see us suffer or hurt or wait or whatever. Just like David's men in the cave, they said, well, look, Saul's right there. Kill him. Get this all over with. They did it 
because they cared about themselves, they cared about David, but David ignored them, even though he knew that probably what they required came from a good heart. David and all his troops could have easily rationalized that God had given Saul into their hands, and so it must be okay to kill him. But it wasn't. These situations are tests. Does David truly love God as he says he does? Does he trust God no matter how long it takes for God to fulfill his promise? Or how much it costs? Does he trust him in spite of that? And does that love translate into obedience even when it's not in your best interest? God allows tests like this to see what is truly in our hearts. Now, the results of his obedience through these challenges, it matured him to become the greatest king in Israel's history. Many challenges, many battles during this time where he needed to listen to God. And also, and this is what's really neat, many psalms were written during this time that would bless humanity throughout human history. If David had not trusted God, he and all human history after him would have lost out. Application. Don't rush what God is teaching you. Don't disobey a clear command or calling, no matter what. Especially if it's something really good that you want, but that you know isn't God's will. David finally got through all that, and he becomes king of Israel. He continues to fight battle after battle, solidifying the boundaries of the land. For the first time, Israel now occupies the land that was given them after the Exodus. David conquers Jerusalem. He makes Jerusalem his capital. He decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It hadn't been actually in the tabernacle since the Philistines had captured it quite a few years prior to this. But he did it the wrong way. He put the ark on a cart, and when Uzzah, the son of the man who kept it, reached, ha- reached out his hand to steady it, when the oxen stumbled, he was struck dead. David was angry. He left the ark for three months and finally moved it properly, as was prescribed in the law, which was on the shoulders of priests. You see, there was a bit of self-will here, a bit of pride. David decided to do it the way he wanted to. He didn't look at the scriptures, and he knew the way it was supposed to be done. Here's our application. We must be so careful. Just because God gives us success, maybe a place of authority, maybe a place over others, maybe a place to make decisions, if he gives us success in one area, we can never think we're above the law or God's clear commands to us. You never get too powerful to be in that position. Then, after David had that sin and he repents and he does it the right way, he decides he wants to build the temple. But Nathan the prophet goes to him and tells him, Go ahead and do it. The Lord's with you. There wasn't anything wrong with that desire. There was a lot of good about it from a human viewpoint. But that was not God's plan for David. And Nathan then has to go back and tells him that David, because he's a man of war, cannot build the temple. His son will build it. 
God gave him, instead of building the temple, he promises David that he's going to have an everlasting heritage. And David's response, he doesn't whine, he doesn't say, well, I really wanted to do that, none of that. He accepts it and he praises God. He gets back to doing what he was called to do, to conquer and fight battles. Now, our application here, what do we do when God says no to what seems to be good things? We need to be thankful and focus on what we're called to do. If we can, do all we can to help support others in their calling. Encourage, equip, pray for them. We sometimes see somebody doing something, we think, oh, that'd be such a neat ministry and we'd want to do it, and God makes it really clear. Nope, that's not for you. We don't want to be jealous. We don't want to be envious. We don't want to undercut them. We want to support them. That's what David did. His actions to do this are written about in much more detail in Chronicles. I'll talk about it more a little bit later. But after that, again, I said he did go back to fighting and leading and all that. But unfortunately, there was one time that he didn't do that. He stayed home. He was out of the battle that he should be in. And that was a big mistake. In Second Samuel 11, it says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Ramah. But David remained in Jerusalem. He wasn't out doing what he was called to do, which was to be the military leader, to fight. And what follows is his adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, and the death of his child. Outside from, of course, not to commit adultery and murder, our application from that is this. You are never released from God's calling in your life on things large or small until the Lord calls you home. It's seldom okay to shift from being obedient in ministry to saying, well, I've put in my time and totally dropping out of serving. Now that doesn't mean we have to keep doing all the things we did at another time in our lives. It does mean that we're never free from the obligations of discipleship and can now simply focus on ourselves. Now, we may shift, though, in how we express our calling. Now, for me, I'll share a little bit of personal stuff on this. I know I was called to be a writer and a teacher for Jesus. I got that calling when I was a really young child, and that has been emphasized to me again and again and again. Then, as an adult, for years, I expressed that in my ministry when I was traveling, I was dashing through airports and teaching seminars where I stood up all day to teach and then literally dashed to the next um, airplane, get to another one. And I did that for years. But I can't practice my calling in the same way today. I've had a number of surgeries, and I don't want to go into all kinds of detail, and lots of physical therapy. But at this present point in time, I can hardly walk. I can't stand for very long, and I'm in really significant pain when I try that. Now, it may or may not improve. I'm still uh, working on it, still doing different things. But regardless of it, I haven't changed in how I express my ministry at the core. 
I can sit really well and I can do my writing and teaching online. And that's what I'm doing now. You are experiencing it. I do podcasts, I do videos, I do blogs. I don't do, um, I don't stand up and do seminars, though I do teach in person. I teach at my church, but I sit on a stool. I'm incredibly thankful for the internet and for all that it enables me to do as I continue my calling which is to be a writer and a teacher for Jesus. Now our application, especially as we get older, life does get harder. Um, I know many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And some of you that are younger, you can't imagine it yet. But it's just astounding how much age changes things. But what we can do is we can shift, we can modify, we can train others, and we can pass it on. But don't even consider quitting. Don't say, I've put in my time, I'm going to just relax or whatever. No, we can never quit in our calling. We also never have a reason to cease practicing biblical virtues. We know the commands in everything to give thanks. Do everything without griping and complaining. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God, and hundreds of similar ones on Christian character. Youth, middle age, and old age all have their challenges and possible excuses to act badly. I hear people all the time, well, you know, it's because of the kids I'm in such a a bad mood. Or when people get older, well, you know, you have no idea how this hurts. And, you know, just the, the idea of the grumpy old man or grumpy old lady. No, 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 no. We are the eternal disciples of the living God. And nothing in our age or current life challenges, whatever they are, gives us an excuse to not work hard to always be pleasing to him. Now David knew that. Even in his sin, he did not cease being a man after God's own heart. And we have his wonderful reflections on that in Psalm 51, where it it talks about how after Nathan the prophet had come to inform David of God's judgment against him, he responds by saying, O loving and kind God, have mercy, have pity upon me, and take away the awful stain of my transgressions. O wash me, cleanse me from this guilt, let me be pure again, for I admit my shameful deed, it haunts me day and night. It is against you and you alone I sinned and did this terrible thing. You saw it all and your sentence against me is just. Create in me a clean new heart. O God filled with clean thoughts and right desires. Don't toss me aside. Banish forever from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. You don't want penance. If you did, how gladly I would do it. You aren't interested in offerings burned before you on the altar. It is a broken spirit you want, remorse and penitence, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not ignore. Application. Even in sin, 
we can still be a person after God's heart. Again, such a great contrast with Saul, who when Samuel confronted him, Saul defended himself, rationalized his sin, and he wouldn't repent. But again, when Nathan confronted David, as Psalm 51 shows, he deeply and sincerely repented. Confessing our sins means we agree with God that we sinned. If we don't, it is incredibly serious. It's saying we know better than God and he can't forgive us or cleanse us. David's sin with Bathsheba had serious consequences. His first son with Bathsheba died. Eventually another son is killed by Absalom who revolts and he's also eventually killed. This sin was not, though, the final event of David's life. In fact, when you read Chronicles, which we'll be doing later on in our plan, it isn't even mentioned. Much happened after that. He sins in other ways, but his repentance continued, and David arguably did his greatest work later in his life. He lived after the sin with Bathsheba approximately 20 years from when Solomon was born until Solomon becomes king. And David did not let sin define his life. As he said, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Forgiven and redeemed, he continued to serve God. And he made preparations for the temple. Read through First Chronicles 22-27. through 27. Again, we'll be going into that much more later on, but let me give you a little bit of what it's, it says. He provided resources in gold, silver, iron, wood, and stone to build it. He provided the people trained to do the work. He organized the workers, the Levites, all involved in the temple work into groups and schedules to do the work. He created detailed job descriptions for everyone involved. A summary of his work is in 1 Chronicles 28, 11-19, where it says, Then David presented his son Solomon with the plans for the temple complex, porch, storerooms, meeting rooms, and the place for atoning sacrifice. He turned over the plans for everything that God's Spirit had brought to his mind, the design of the courtyards, the arrangement of the rooms, and the closets for storing all the holy things. Things. He gave him his plan for organizing the Levites and priests in the work of leading and ordering worship in the house of God, and for caring for the liturgical furnishings. He provided exact specifications for how much gold and silver was needed for each article used in the services of worship, the gold and silver lampstands and the lamps, the gold tables used for consecrated bread, the silver tables, the gold forks, the bowls and the jars, the incense altar. And he gave him the plan for sculpting the cherubs with their wings outstretched over the chest of the covenant of God, the cherubim throne. Here are the blueprints for the whole project as God gave me to understand it, David said. He also, and this is really neat, left us his psalms that continue to bless us today. David, as he was getting older and older, went back to the love of his youth, his music. We assume that prior to this time, the psalms were probably primarily just in oral form. But later in life, 
when organizing the music for the temple. He edited them and he organized them along with the specific instructions that we see in the headers of the Psalms as to how they're to be performed. And it tells us also that he did this in First Chronicles 25.1 where it says, Next David and the worship leaders selected some from the family of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun for special service in preaching and music. From his prayers, from years of walking with God, his journals, his songs, his private devotions, whatever form they were in, he was now able to leave a legacy to others. In summary, here's the pattern of David's life. After great sins, heartfelt repentance, and then great mercy. Remember, no matter how great your sin, and David committed many, and they were big ones, the same God who loved and forgave him loves and forgives you. Accept it and rejoice in it. I'm sure David has an eternity of surprises of people in heaven as he meets those who've been blessed by his example and what he wrote in the Psalms. Final application, you too can be a person after God's own heart. To do that, keep your heart focused on God, confess your sins, accept His forgiveness, and commit to fully fulfilling your calling. You never know how you getting up after falling, keeping going when you are tired, and determining to finish strong will touch the lives of many after you. What a wonderful heritage you can have as you work hard to be a person after God's own heart. That's all for now. Please check out the additional resources at www.bible805.com and please tell your friends about the materials available there. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 